Tonight we begin in Matthew chapter 19, and in the first two verses of the chapter we come in sort of an entirely different section of the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll know what I mean as soon as I read these first two verses. We read here. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. Now, what's interesting about this point in the Gospel of Matthew is the geography. Up to this point, as far as we've known in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has never in his adult ministry gone to Jerusalem. Never. All that Matthew has told us has been about the Galilean ministry of Jesus, except for that one time when he went even north of Galilee and met in the city of Tyre and Sidon, met with that, that Syrophoenician woman that we talked about several weeks ago. But Matthew has never put an adult Jesus in Jerusalem or on his way to Jerusalem. Now, we know from other Gospels, in particular the Gospel of John, that Jesus had, in fact, visited Jerusalem many times as an adult. Very interesting, the differences between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which three together are often called the synoptic Gospels, synoptic meaning seeing together. And then the fourth Gospel is sort of its own thing, the Gospel of John. It it seems as if John wrote his Gospel deliberately last to, I think, fill in major themes and ideas that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not include. And so John centers much more of the ministry of Jesus around these visits that he makes to Jerusalem, even as he lived in Galilee. But as us, studying the Gospel of Matthew, we haven't seen an adult Jesus doing ministry in Judea and then in Galilee. If you're going to think of it in these terms, today we think of the land of Israel or the Holy Land. Well, in that day, they basically had it divided into three geographical regions— In the north was Galilee, in the center was Samaria, and in the south was Judea. Jesus is traveling from Galilee in the north down to Judea. And we see here verse 1 and 2 again. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee. He's leaving Galilee in the Gospel of Matthew now. And he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him, and he healed him them there. I should say. He healed them there. Matthew points this out so that we would understand that the popularity of Jesus and the power of Jesus was not restricted to Galilee, which we might think of otherwise, right? Maybe Jesus was just a spectacular Galilee phenomenon. No, he was not. Even in Judea, he was hugely popular and he healed many people coming down to that southern region. It's interesting, though. It says, as Matthew Poole pointed out, that he healed them, but it doesn't say they believed in him. And now we're going to see that as he's in Judea, coming into the area where there was much more of a religious flavor, because Judea was the area where Jerusalem was, You had much more of a presence of the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the religious leaders. Now Jesus, beginning in verse 3, is going to come into a conflict with the religious leaders of his day, specifically the Pharisees. They're trying to set a trap for Jesus around the issue of divorce. Verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For just any reason. Now, this continues the theme of conflict and controversy with the religious leaders that we have seen growing all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. All throughout Matthew, Jesus is hitting against the religious leaders, whether they be scribes or Pharisees or whatever they are. Now, previously in Matthew, they had questioned Jesus as they did, or excuse me, as he did his work in Galilee. Now, in Judea, Jesus is questioned by them, and their questions were not honest. Notice this. What does it say in verse 3? They asked this, testing him. Please notice. These were not honest theological questioners. 
These were not people who had, in their own life, some difficulty with marriage or divorce or remarriage, and they wanted counsel from Jesus on this. No, they asked them this as a trap. And this was the question they asked. If you notice in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Divorce was a controversial topic in Jesus' day, and it had two main schools or, or, or groups of thinking. It was centered around two of its most famous proponents. The first was the school of Rabbi Shammai. Now, this was a strict and an unpopular view. And the second was the school of Rabbi Hillel. And this was a lax or a loose and very popular view. It's very interesting to examine the ideas of marriage in the days of Jesus. Among the Jews of that day, marriage was seen as a sacred duty. If a man was unmarried after the age of 20, except if he had given his life to concentrate on the study of the law, if a man was unmarried after the age of 20, he was guilty of breaking God's law to be fruitful and multiply. Now, how about if we applied that today, right? According to William Barclay, it was said of a man who remained unmarried that by not having children, he was actually murdering his own descendants and he had lessened the glory of God on earth. Because their whole idea was to bring a lot of children into the world, right? And the more children you bring into the world, the more people there are made in the image of God, and the more images of God there are in the world, the more glory to God there is. And so they said, by you not getting married when you're young and having lots of children, you are lessening the glory of God. So in many ways, the Jews of Jesus' day had a high ideal of marriage, at least in theory. You see, despite their high ideal of marriage, the Jews of that day also had a very low view of women. Now, I have to qualify this. You and I would say today, in view of a Christian perspective, that the Jewish people of Jesus' day had a low view of women. In a moment, I'll explain why. But if you were to compare them to the pagan view of women, the Jews had a higher view of women than the pagans did. Nevertheless, compared to a New Testament conception of women and womanhood, it was low. You see, the Jews, again, I'm going to quote a commentator named A.B. Bruce. He said, the Jews had very low views of woman. A wife was bought, regarded as property, used as a household drudge or servant, and dismissed at pleasure. Now, I find it very interesting that you had this theoretical high ideal of marriage but a low view of women. And I would say what's very tragic in our modern age is that today we also have a low view of women. I really believe this in the culture at large. You say, how can this be? In light of the great feminist revolution of the late 1960s and 70s where it was all women power and, you know, feminist revolutionists. Listen, I believe that the, that the view of women today in society at large is lower than it's ever been. Well, not ever been in history. I would just say ever been within recent memory in Western culture. And why do I say this? I say this because we have stripped away from women the things that distinguish them in their womanhood. If I can say this, you see this most particularly in young women today. You see, young women today have been told that there's nothing distinctively womanly or feminine about um, being married and uh, raising children or, or, or uh, acting in a modest and dignified way or many of these other things. And so for many of these younger women, they, they feel that the only way that they can demonstrate their femininity, the only way that they can demonstrate I am a woman, is to show their bodies. I mean, that proves they're a woman, right? But wearing a dress doesn't prove you're a woman. Taking care of a family or having some sort of more domestic career, these things don't. But I believe that there's a correlation between these things. I think what's very strange is that in many ways, 
In the days of Jesus, men had a low view of women. Today, it's women who often have a low view of women. They they often reject the idea that women should be different than men in any way. Now, in Jesus' day, their low view of women meant that their high ideal of marriage was constantly being compromised. And those compromises were made into law under the thinking of guys like the Rabbi Hillel. You see, under the thinking of Rabbi Hillel, a man could divorce his wife, and I'm quoting now from William Barclay, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner, if she spun, if she went out with unbound hair, or if she spoke to men in the streets, or if she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence, or if she was a fighting woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. And then Merlin Barclay quoted another rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, who even went the length of saying that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman whom he liked better and whom he found to be more beautiful. This was seen as valid grounds for divorce. And so they're trying to come and trap Jesus. By the way, they also might be trying to get Jesus entangled into a political controversy of the time. Because these were the day when a governor over this region was named Herod, and he was illegally and immorally married to his sister-in-law Herodias. This was the whole thing that got jammed. The Baptist his head cut off, right? Maybe they're trying to draw Jesus into this debate. And so they come and they ask him the question. Look again at verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And those words were the center of the debate. You see, you had the thinking of Rabbi Shammai, you had the thinking of Rabbi Hillel. And each one of these schools of thought understood that the Mosaic law gave permission for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Let me read you Deuteronomy 24, 1. It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, each side, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel and those who followed each one of these rabbis, both of them believed Deuteronomy 24.1. Both of them believed the passage. It wasn't a matter of not believing the passage. The whole issue turned around, what is the definition of uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24? Because this is what Moses said. Moses said, If a man finds uncleanness in his wife, he can go through the legal procedure of divorcing her. So isn't that the question? What constitutes uncleanness? Now, Rabbi Shammai and his train of thinking understood that uncleanness meant sexual immorality and that this was the only valid reason for divorce. Rabbi Hillel and his school understood that uncleanness meant any kind of indiscretion. As we've stated before, even to the point where that for some rabbis, burning a husband's dinner was considered grounds for divorce. And there's another thing you've got to consider about this. The rabbis also said, again, according to William Barclay, that the rabbis in those days had sayings and traditions about the duty to divorce a bad wife. They had many sayings about bad marriages and the bad wife. They said, again, quoting from Barclay, that a man with a bad wife would never face hell because he had already paid for his sins on earth. They said that the man who is ruled by his wife has a life that is not a life. They said that a bad wife is like leprosy to her husband, and the only way he can be cured of this is by divorce. And they even said this, that if a man has a bad wife, it is a religious duty to divorce her. That's what they taught. And so they're testing Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to side with one group or another. Jesus, do you accept Rabbi Shammai's interpretation or do you accept Rabbi Hillel's interpretation? And they feel they have him stuck on this because if he chooses Rabbi Shammai's interpretation, which seems to be more faithfully biblically, 
then Jesus has just made himself very unpopular with the masses because they liked the idea of easy divorce. Well, maybe I should back up for a minute. The men who ran the society liked the idea of easy divorce because one thing you have to know about divorce in the Jewish culture at this time was that a woman could not initiate divorce. Only the husband. So the husbands, the the men, the male establishment, if you want to use that, they loved the school of Hillel, right? And if Jesus sides with the school of Shammai, he's made himself unpopular with most people. But, but, But if he sides with the school of Hillel, then people know, well, you're a compromise. You can't say that it's righteous for a man to divorce his wife if she burns his dinner. You see, they're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to trap him. The religious leaders had good reason to believe that they had caught Jesus upon the horns of a dilemma, as we say. So what does he say? Verse 4. And he answered and said to them, this is brilliant. Oh, when you read things like this, You just love Jesus more and more. You know, Jesus didn't say, well, according to Rabbi Shammai, did he say that? No. Did he say, well, you know, I read in Rabbi Hillel, did he say that? No. This is what he says. It's so wonderful. Verse 4. And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? I'll stop right there. This must have driven them crazy. Because these were Pharisees. These were men who lived and breathed devotion to the law of God. For them, that was their reason for living, was to learn and memorize and obey the law of God. And Jesus says, you know, guys, didn't you read this in your Bibles? (laughs) You know, Jesus is going to give them a very basic little Bible study which of course they needed, but they didn't think they needed it. And it would have offended their pride to have this, what some people might consider an obscure Galilean carpenter teaching them about the Bible, but Jesus is going to do it nevertheless. He said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce and rabbinical opinions. You know what Jesus wanted to talk about? He wanted to talk about marriage and the Bible. Please notice that. It's a big difference, isn't it? And Jesus began by talking about the first marriage, the marriage between Adam and Eve. And by the way, this is a very wise approach to have the emphasis upon the scriptures and upon marriage rather than upon divorce. That's a very wise approach for anyone interested in keeping a marriage together. Now, the the Lord here is honoring the scripture, isn't he? He's saying, listen, If we want to know something about marriage, let's open our Bibles. Let's go back to the beginning. He's not answering the question from Shammai. He's not answering the question from Hillel. He's answering it from the book of Genesis. And by the way, haven't you noticed here? Don't you think Jesus regarded Adam and Eve as historical figures, the way he talks about them here? Right? In the mind of Jesus, Adam and Eve were real people. They weren't fables or fantasies or anything like that. And this is what he said. He made them at the beginning. He made them male and female. And God married them in the Garden of Eden. The two became one flesh. You know, it's interesting. In the case of Adam and Eve, you could say that divorce was not only a bad idea for them. It it was completely impossible. Who else would they marry? Adam and Eve were stuck together. That was it. And so here he's saying the whole idea of marriage is grounded in creation. We're not just talking about an agreement that a man and woman make between themselves. We're talking about something that is rooted in creation. So he says that he who made them at the beginning, verse 4, made them male and female. In quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 here, Jesus indicated 
that God made men and women and he made them different. And that God is the one who joined men and women together in marriage. Jesus here is asserting God's authority over marriage. It's God's institution, not man's. And so it's very fair to say that his rules apply. You know, I've thought about this, and I've thought, well, is marriage God's institution just for believers, just for people who are his followers, or is it generally for for all society? And I would say marriage is God's institution for all of society. It is one of the gracious gifts that God has given to humanity. Do you know how useful and how good it is to have men in marriages and women in marriages? How wonderful and how helpful, how good for society that partnership is between a man and a woman. How wonderful it is for a place to raise children in that environment, is it not? Now, by bringing the issue back to the scriptural foundation of marriage, Jesus made it plain that, first of all, couples need to forsake their singleness, right? A man shall leave his father and mother. There has to be a separation from what goes before. And then secondly, they come together in a one flesh relationship. And I like how Jesus refers to this one flesh relationship. First of all, he says that the one flesh relationship is a fact. He will be joined to his wife. And then he says later in verse 6, they are not two but one flesh. But then he also says it's a process because it says the two shall become one flesh. I think that's exactly how it is in the marital relationship. This one flesh, this unity between husband and wife, it is a fact, but it's also a process, is it not? And never finally completed this side of glory. So he says in verse 5, that he should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now again, back to creation and Adam's statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 23, we see that men and women... As husband and wife are different, right? Adam and Eve were not the same. One was a man and one was a woman. And the only difference was not in body parts or length of hair or just distinguishing physical characteristics. They were different beings. They were different people. Yet they were joined together as one, completing one another as one flesh. It's very interesting what Jesus quotes here from Genesis chapter 1. We see here that he's quoting something that Adam said. Adam said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It was as if at the creation of Eve, Adam said, Now, by the way, you remember the circumstances of the creation of Eve, right? Have you ever thought about the fact That God deliberately gave Eve, God deliberately gave womankind a different origin, a different way of coming into the world. He created Adam out of the dust of the ground. He created Adam in the context of creating all of creation, and then he created Adam out of the dust of the ground. But woman was different. Woman came later, and she did not come out of the dust of the ground She came out of man himself, out of the side, out of the rib, whatever way you would like to apply it. Now, this is a very important distinction, because when Adam said this, that that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two should become one flesh, it's as if Adam said this, you are different than me, Eve, but you were made for me, and you were made from me, We're not the same, but we're one. In Genesis, Adam tells us that men and women are different from creation. They have different sources of creation. They have different methods of creation. They have different times of creation. They have different names at creation. Now, despite these fundamental creation-rooted differences between the natures of men and women... God calls a husband and wife to come together as one and as one flesh. And this process of things that are not alike coming together is part of God's great work in marriage. It's the work of sanctifying, the work of providing a good parental team. 
Now, you know this, don't you? You know this instinctively. You know it from things you've read. You, you know it from comedians you've listened to, right? Haven't you listened to a comedian? We've all heard it. And I suppose if I was better prepared for this Bible study, this thing, I would have come up with a long list of jokes that joke about the differences between men and women, right? You, you've all heard such humor. And, and we all laugh at it, don't we? Because it's funny and because it usually identifies very real differences between men and women, right? Now, by the way, I think that this is one of God's great purposes for the institution of marriage. To take two things that are not alike, a man and a woman are not alike, but yet he joins them together. And one of the reasons is so that each can be taught to love the other. When I say other, I just don't mean other person. I mean another kind of person. If I can say this, this is also one of the theological reasons why same-sex marriage, I think, is not right before God. Why a man and a man cannot marry one another in God's eyes. And why a woman and a woman cannot marry him. Because those are not two examples of the other coming to love and becoming one flesh with each other. No, God intended that a man be a man, that a woman be a woman, and the two retain their same ideas. Not that the man become feminized, or not that the woman become masculinized. No, that a man remain a man, and a woman remain a woman, and they learn how to love one another, and learn how to love the other, together in a one-flesh relationship. Now, the idea that they shall become one-flesh includes the sexual union. And I think it's very illustrative that the sexual union is a literal joining together. But it goes far beyond that. I like what William Barclay said to this point here. He said that marriage is given not that two people should do one thing together. And he was talking about the sexual union there. That that marriage is not given so that two people should do one thing together, but that they should do all things together. And this is the idea of one flesh. I I like what John Trapp, the old Puritan commentator, talked about the idea of being joined together. He just gave one quick sentence of what it meant. He said, it means be glued to her, stuck together where they can't be separated. And you could say that the the reference is first, or in in a first sense, to the physical fleshly unity But the flesh, especially in Hebrew thinking, according to A.B. Bruce, it represents the entire man. And the ideal of unity in marriage, it covers the whole nature. He says, it is a unity of soul as well as body, of sympathy, of interest, and of purpose. And this is what marriage is about. Two becoming one. I find this very interesting and very instructive, especially when you study what the Apostle Paul had to say about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. You see, I believe that the core of Paul's teaching on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, his teaching on marriage to the man, the core of it is this one flesh idea. The core of it is that that wife is part of you, husband, therefore you should love her and treat her well. You are one with her. And if the husband recognizes that, and if he begins to take his wife into account in all of his thinking, in all of his acting, no longer thinking exclusively of her, or no longer thinking exclusively of himself, but thinking of them together as a couple, where it's no longer you, it's no longer me, but predominant in his thinking is us. If he does that, he will act properly as a husband, and he will bless his wife to no end. The other very interesting thing about that Ephesians 5 passage as it relates to this principle of one flesh is something that that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about it, which I can't say is scriptural, but I think it's very instructive. He says that according to Hibbs' observation, that women have an instinctive desire for and valuing of this one flesh unity in marriage. Men have to learn it. And this is sometimes immensely frustrating to a wife. She she just longs for this closeness, this closeness on every level, to share everything in their lives together, and the man oftentimes seems oblivious to it. But, But he can, he can learn this. And when he does, he sees that his married life is revolutionized. Now, before I go on to what it says in verse 6, 
Should I just point out one other idea here where it says that the two shall become one flesh, that it also prohibits polygamy? The two, not the five, the two shall become one flesh. And this shows us that this was God's intention from the beginning. Though polygamy was allowed under the Old Testament, it was never God's best. And men should have known so from looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says the two shall become one flesh. So I don't hold the great men of the Old Testament, as great as they are, and who am I to say such a thing, that I do not hold David or Solomon or any of these men blameless. But, but there's a sense in which as a preacher of the gospel, I cannot hold them blameless. They should have known. Jesus indicates here that they should have known because it was from the beginning God gave us a prototype of marriage in the Garden of Eden and Jesus is illustrating it right here that one man and one woman, not two men, not two women, not one man and five women, but one man and one woman come together in a one flesh relationship. And they should have known so because it was that way from the beginning. Don't think that God smiled upon polygamy all throughout the Old Testament and then just decided somewhere in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament that a guy had to settle down with one woman. No, no, no. From the beginning, it was his intention, one man with one woman. Otherwise, it would have been Adam and Eve's. Eve's number one, Eve number two, Eve number three, whatever which, by the way, would have been a much more logical way to populate the world in a hurry, would it not? But he did not. So this shows us what marriage should be. Now in verse 6, he says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus, with this, also reminded the Pharisees that marriage is spiritually binding before God. Marriage is not merely a social contract. And as God has joined, he expects man to honor what he has joined and to keep the marriage together. Now, please understand this. Of course, it's on my mind just this last Saturday. Saturday, I was present at a wedding, was I not? And there they were. The bride and the groom were lovely. It was a lovely occasion. And, you know, everybody loves a wedding, and it was just a beautiful occasion. But every time I hear a bride and a groom take the vows, I think, okay, you, you've got something happening on many levels here, right? They're making promises. First of all, they've made promises already before the state. Here we are in a European culture where, where you have the legal wedding separate from the spiritual or the religious wedding. But, but there's, there's promises made before the state, before the government, are there not? Then... There are also promises made before the family and the friends, are there not? This is why a wedding is the kind of occasion that it is. It's in the presence of family. It's in the presence of friends. Witnesses are present. Family, friends are all witnesses. We make these promises before the state. We make these promises before our family and friends. But the greatest party present at a wedding is not the state. It's not the family and the friends. It is God himself. What God has joined together. Not the state, not the approval of family and friends, not, not what the social contract has joined together, what God has joined together. He is present at every wedding. Now, this is what I want you to keep in mind. Because in a moment, Jesus is going to talk more about this. And you have to say, well... What does it take to break this marriage commitment in the eyes of the state, for example? And the state has its laws, right? In order to enact a divorce, this is what you have to do. You have to do this and this and this. Okay, great. What does it take to enact it in the eyes of your family and friends? Okay, there might be other protocols to go through. I understand that today, now, oh, God forbid if it has come to Europe, but I, I know it's in America, that not only do they have greeting cards, you know, for all special a greeting card for Valentine's Day, a greeting card for birthday, a greeting card for this, now they have greeting cards for divorces. Where you, you would, yes, you announce to family, and anyway, whatever protocol you would go through to announce it to your family and friends, but what must one do to have their divorce recognized by God? Because God has joined together. 
By the way, a very interesting comment here on the phrase joined together by the commentator Adam Clark. He says that literally in the ancient Greek, it's yoked together as oxen would be yoked together in a plow where each one of them must pull equally in order to bring the plow along to some progress. And he also says that among the ancients, when people were newly married, they would put a yoke upon their necks. Could you imagine that? Putting a yoke upon the neck of the bride and the groom. Or they would put chains upon their arms to show that they were one, that they were united, and that they had to pull together in the common cooperation of the marriage, which is a true symbol. Or you can just go saw log together or something like that to demonstrate that you have a oneness together. All right, now verse 7. You would think that Jesus had adequately answered the question to them, right? Guys, I'm not talking about Hillel. I'm not talking about Shammai. I'm talking about the book of Genesis. I'm talking about Adam and Eve. And I'm really not really interested to talk with you guys about divorce. I want to talk to you about marriage. And God intends marriage to be binding. That's what Jesus told them. What God has joined together, let not man put a, a separate. But it didn't stop the question there. Look at verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Now, beginning at verse 7, they ask the question, why then did Moses command to give the certificate of divorce and to put her away? Do you see what they're doing? They're going back to Deuteronomy 24.1, the passage we talked about in the beginning. Jesus, you just said that what God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, it seems like Moses was separating. It seems like Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce when we found uncleanness in our wife. The Pharisees wrongly thought, did you see that there in verse 7? They wrongly thought that God commanded divorce where there was uncleanness. Look at it in verse 7. Why then did Moses command to get... Moses never commanded divorce. He allowed it. One rabbinic again saying that day went, if a man has a bad wife, it is a religious duty to divorce her. They had twisted and reinterpreted the words of Moses to say that that divorce was something commanded in these circumstances. But Jesus noted the difference between commanded and permitted. And God never commands divorce, but he does permit it. In fact, the Pharisees thought that Moses was creating divorce or promoting divorce. Do you know what Moses was doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1? Moses was controlling divorce. But because prior to Moses saying that, a man could divorce his wife for any reason, for any cause, and by any method he could. He could wake up in the morning and say, I don't want you anymore, get out of my house, and they were divorced. This way... The man had to have cause, and it had to be done with a legal process. He had to write out a certificate of divorce. Moses was controlling divorce, not opening the floodgates for it. But why? Jesus, Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. Why did Moses permit divorce at all if this was not God's original intention? And by the way, we must admit it is not God's original intention. By the way, would we say that it is never the intention of a married couple, is it? Have you ever once heard of a married couple that got married with the intention of divorcing? Never. You look at them on the wedding day, right? There they are, and they never have a thought in the world that they would divorce. People don't start out their marriages that way then why does it happen? Why does it happen if the couple doesn't start out wanting it? Well, why does it happen if God, as he says in the book of Malachi, if God hates divorce, why does it happen? Jesus tells us in verse 8. He says, because of the hardness of your hearts, he permitted you to divorce your wives. 
Divorce is never commanded, but it's permitted by God in certain circumstances, and God permits it because of the hardness of human hearts. It was as if Jesus said this, here's the ideal. The ideal is for a marriage to stick together. Does not everybody agree upon that? Here is the ideal. And here is the allowance or the permission of God when human sinfulness and hardness of heart has made the ideal unobtainable. What is this hardness of heart? I think you could talk about this hardness of heart in two aspects, could you not? First of all, it's the hardness of heart that people have towards God. Look, this is particularly true within a Christian marriage, is it not? I cannot be a bad husband without also being a bad Christian. Particularly so in a Christian marriage. I won't even talk about a marriage having to do with unbelievers, but let's just talk within a Christian marriage. If I'm a bad husband, I am a bad Christian. And there's something wrong in my relationship with God. There is some hardness of heart between me and God if I am not responsive to his commands to tell me what I should do and what I should be as a husband. So the hardness of heart is between man and God, but would we not also say that the hardness of heart may very well between the people in the marriage themselves, between the husband and the wife? Sometimes when there's a dispute, a a problem between a husband and a wife, sometimes the heart of the offending party is hard and they will not do what has to be done to reconcile the relationship. And sometimes the heart of the offended party is hard and they refuse to reconcile and get past the offense even when there is contrition and repentance. Oftentimes the hardness of heart is on both sides. I don't know how many times I've seen it as a pastor. You have a man who neglects and in some ways mistreats his wife, not to physical abuse, but he's just not a good husband. And he's just a bad husband to his wife. And he just wears out his wife with his disregard and unconcern for the marriage and a hundred or a thousand small cruelties that he inflicts upon her. And the wife just can't take it anymore. And one day she says, that's it, I'm leaving. And she walks out. And I've seen it, I've seen it with my own eyes, I've lived it with my own experience with other couples. That wakes the husband up. Good heavens, he's a broken man, he's a changed man, and he comes back and he's genuinely wanting change, he's genuinely wanting to pray. But you know what? The wife is now unwinnable. She has hardened her heart against him. And you look at these situations, sometimes so complex, and you think, on the one hand, she should open up her heart again to the husband, on the other hand, who can blame her? He's been such a horrible guy for so many years. But again, we cannot deny that the problem here is hardness of heart. But but here's the thing. I like what D.A. Carson said. He said, divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but it's evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. So Jesus says there, I say to you, verse 9, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus here is interpreting the meaning of the word uncleanness from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. He's showing us here that it does in fact refer to sexual immorality, not just anything that might displease the husband. Therefore, divorce and the freedom to remarry without sin is only permitted in the case of sexual immorality. Now, what is sexual immorality? The ancient Greek word that's translated sexual immorality here is the ancient Greek word pornea. It is a broad word. It is not a narrow word. It is a broad word describing a wide span of sexual impropriety. Someone may be guilty of pornea without having actually consummated an act of adultery. In other words, a 
A man doesn't actually have to have sexual intercourse with a woman, not his wife, to be guilty of pornea. There are other sexual activities that they can indulge in short of actual sexual intercourse that would still fit this description. A a man could be so given over to pornography, towards sexual immorality in other areas of his life, that it actually does fit this description. Again, to quote from D.A. Carson, it must be admitted that the word pornea itself is very broad. Pornea covers the entire range of such sins and should not be restricted unless the context requires it. There are men who try to justify this. Well, I, I know I was fooling around with that woman, but I never actually had sexual intercourse with her. Well, listen, it fits with pornea. Because this word, deliberately chosen by Jesus, was a broad... It definitely refers to sexual impropriety, but of a broad nature, not a narrow one. Now, Jesus says, this is permission for divorce. We asked ourselves the question before. Okay, we understand what it takes to, to, to obtain a divorce in the eyes of the state. We may understand what it is to dissolve a marriage in the eyes of our family and friends. What does it take to dissolve a marriage in the eyes of God? Jesus just told us it takes sexual immorality. And to this permission for divorce, the Apostle Paul added another one. He added the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, where Paul very clearly says that if somebody's married to an unbeliever, and if the unbeliever wants to leave the marriage, don't push them out of the marriage. Don't, don't look to get out of the marriage, Christian. But if the unbeliever wishes to depart from the marriage, let them depart, and the believer is free to remarry. That's what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, and he says it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This leaves us with two biblical permissions for divorce, Two reasons why God in heaven would look down upon a marriage and say, I consider this marriage dissolved. You see, I'll tell you how I explain it to people sometimes. Oftentimes man wants to divide things into three categories. You have single, married, and divorced. I say to you that God does not have three categories. That God has two. He has single and he has married. Either God sees you as bound to a marriage vow or he does not. Either you are single and that means you're not bound to a marriage vow and you're eligible to be married. Or you are already married, you are bound to a marriage vow. And God says, there are two reasons why I will recognize the dissolving, the the breaking of a marriage bond, and that enables the person who has legitimately had that marriage bond, that enables them to be considered single now, and they can be remarried. And the two reasons are sexual immorality, pornea, as Jesus mentioned here, and as Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now listen, this is where I have to get very... Difficult, might I say uncomfortable. What, what, what I'm going to teach right now, I say I teach this being uncomfortable, but I have to be faithful to the scriptures. Where I note that incompatibility is not here given as grounds. Not loving each other anymore is not given as grounds. Even brutality and misery are not given for grounds for divorce. Though, please... I would never, and I don't think the Bible would ever tell a woman, for example, who's being abused in a marriage. There's no hint of, of, uh, of, uh, of sexual immorality, and at least for the time being the hypocrite husband who's being brutal claims to be Christian. I don't think the Bible for a moment tells her to stay in there under that abuse. But, but Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that that would be grounds for a separation and a consequent, what Paul would consider, celibacy within marriage. 
You see, the words of Paul show us in 1 Corinthians 7 that a Christian couple, man flax, split up for reasons that do not justify a biblical divorce. It may be because of general unhappiness or conflict or abuse or misery or addiction or poverty. Paul recognizes, without at all encouraging, that one might depart in such circumstances, but they can't consider themselves divorced with the right to remarry because their marriage was not split up for reasons that justify biblical divorce. Now, the problems that are serious... There are serious problems in marriages, are there not? Serious problems which fall short of the biblical permission for divorce. They may justify a separation, but the partners are expected to honor their marriage vows even in their separation. Because as far as God is concerned, they're still married. We had a student at the Bible college a few years ago. Nice young man. And he had a girlfriend back home and was really looking forward to going back home and marrying his girlfriend. And he did. Went back home, married her. They were married a year, year and a half. And he found out that his girlfriend was a compulsive, or his wife now, was a compulsive liar. That, that she said, and, and I don't know if I have the story straight on all these. I'm just giving these as an example. She, she said that her parents were dead and they were very much alive. She said that she had cancer of a particular sort and she had never had this cancer. She, she had that she said she had this kind of education and she had never had it. She said that this was true and it was. She was a compulsive liar, and he never knew it going into the marriage. Now there were people who counseled him and said, "You should divorce her." And, and he said, I cannot. I cannot. I cannot divorce. And I would say in this situation, he did not have biblical grounds for divorce. Now, if he found it un... No, if he found it impossible to live with the woman under those circumstances, I would say that the Bible would justify them being separated. But he would have to live as if he were married though separated. And if she never gave him grounds for biblical divorce, he would have to remain that way forever. This is what Jesus meant in verse 9, where he said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. This is why a person who does not have a legitimate divorce in the eyes of God commits adultery upon remarrying. It's because they're not divorced in the eyes of God. I would think that perhaps if the language of the New Testament allowed it, Jesus would say they're guilty of bigamy. God sees you as already under obligation to a marriage vow, and now you're adding another wife or another husband. Their old marriage was not dissolved on biblical grounds, and so that marriage is still valid, and they're actually guilty of bigamy and adultery. There's some very fascinating things here. One thing that's fascinating is that Jesus here is making a break, not only with Rabbi Hillel. He already broke with Rabbi Hillel, right? Now he's breaking with Rabbi Shammai, because Rabbi Shammai taught that when a marriage was broken, when a marriage was divorced for reasons that were not biblical, that it didn't matter. You could just remarry whoever you wanted to. Now Jesus is breaking with Rabbi Shammai as well. But this teaching of Jesus shows us that marriage is a promise made to God, to our spouse, and to the world is a binding promise and it can't be broken at our own discretion. And we have to admit this is a hard teaching from Jesus. There are many reasons people give today to justify divorce that do not fulfill the two biblical allowances for divorce. But there are also many situations where a marriage is separated or divorced for reasons that do not fulfill the biblical allowance for divorce, but later one or more of the spouses goes on to give the biblical allowance, either by marriage or by sexual relations with another. 
Could I use the example here theoretically of the young man from the Bible college who married the woman who was a compulsive liar? Let's just say, okay? Let's just say that he said, well, I can't divorce her because I don't have biblical grounds, but I can't live with her because she's impossible to live with. She's a compulsive liar. And so he says, we just have to live in separate houses, but I will still remain faithful to my marriage vow. I will not date another woman. I will not because I'm still bound to this woman in marriage. Okay, he recognized that. Well, let's say that she took up with another man. Let's say that she started living with him or, or even married another man, right? Well, I would say, well, now you have biblical grounds for divorce. Your marriage did not initially separate for biblical grounds, but now you have these biblical grounds. Now, if I could introduce one more principle before we move on to verse 10. We have to also remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Let me read that to you. In this context of marriage and divorce and grounds for a divorce and remarriage and all this, this is what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very wisely wrote. He wrote this. As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And in the context, this is what that statement from Paul means. Let me read it to you again. As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And in the context, I'll tell you exactly what Paul means by that. It means that Paul's, or at least one of his ideas with this statement, was a warning about trying to undo the past in regard to relationships. Because listen, when these biblical principles intersect with real life, it can be incredibly complicated and messy, can it not? Unbelievably so. And so a a woman says, well, I, I divorced my first husband and it wasn't for biblical grounds, but later he supplied biblical grounds. But but I married my other husband before it was, and then but then you know should I leave my first husband and go back to my second husband? And then but what about this? What he did over here? And I'm not you know and it's it, incredibly complicated, right? That's why I think God gave the inspiration of Paul to write this. As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. In other words, just just stop. Where are you right now? D- don't go back and try to undo the past in regard to relationships. God tells us to repent of whatever sin may have been there, and then to move on. So if you're married to your second wife, after wrongfully divorcing your first wife, and then you become a Christian, don't think that now you have to divorce your second wife, and go back to your first wife to try to undo the past. As the Lord has called you, walk in that place right now. Because it's a fact, isn't it? These things become incredibly complicated when they intersect with real life. When I counsel somebody about divorce, I never tell them to divorce. Never. I tell them whether or not they have biblical grounds for divorce. And then, judging on their life situation... I tell them whether or not it might not be wise or advisable for them to separate. By the way, just in my own opinion, and I don't regard myself as an expert, so somebody else, you may disagree, I have a different opinion, and I would probably say you're right and I'm wrong. But in my opinion, my experience, separation is not often a useful tool in reconciling a marriage. But what separation may be, is for the safety and well-being of one or more of the partners. And for uh, such a reason as that, I may very well recommend it. I may, with great pain, tell a man or a woman, I don't believe you have biblical grounds for divorce, but this, this situation you're in is very bad, and it has the potential to be much worse. You, you should separate. But, but my main idea is not doing that with the idea of helping the marriage. The main idea is much more um, immediate than that. It's, it's to, to preserve two lives. Not necessarily from death, but, but from unhealth and from, from bad problems. Now, if this all seems too hard, too severe, I, I think we have an evidence that I'm on the right track here when you read verse 10. His disciples said to him, 
if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Do you understand what they're saying? Well, Jesus, if marriage is this permanent, if I can't divorce my wife for burning the dinner, maybe I shouldn't get married at all. And I think they say, well, at least you understood what I said, right? If it's this binding, maybe I should reconsider. They understood that marriage was not a commitment to be entered into quickly or lightly, and then considered that since marriage is so binding before God, maybe it is better not to marry. Oh, I could tell you, you know, it's premarital counseling. How rarely do I feel that couples really listen during premarital counseling? You know, I wish I had a more positive view of it. And, and maybe those who are much better at it, and you don't have to look hard to find somebody who's better at premarital counseling than I am. But so often it seems to me that many of the couples that we just don't listen, that, that love is in the air, stars are in their eyes. But one thing I always try to tell them as I tell them the good advice, listen, you need to keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. In other words, look for the faults or the weaknesses or the failings of character in that person before you get married, before you decide to marry them, and then afterwards you keep them half close to that. Well, very sadly, it's common for couples to do just the opposite, right? They keep their eyes half closed to the faults and the failings before marriage, but after marriage, boom, wide open eyes. Wow, they see everything. Which should be just the opposite. Anyway, verse 10. His disciples said to him, As such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But, but he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs themselves for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Jesus is recognizing that celibacy is good for some. It's good for the one who is able to accept it. You know, two good examples of people who are able to accept it. Jesus himself, right? Never married. And then the Apostle Paul, who I believe was married, and under circumstances we don't know, lost his wife, divorced, abandoned, died, I don't know. But he lived his life in ministry as a single man. And so he says, listen, not everybody can, but if you can, accept it. And then Jesus talks about three different kinds of eunuchs. Those who are physically unable to marry or carry on normal sexual relations in marriage. He talks about those who are born without the capacity for sex in marriage. He says they're eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, some sort of genetic defect. And then he says, there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, those who were made eunuchs by others, therefore leaving them without the capacity for sex and marriage. But then he talked about those who choose to live without sex or marriage for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so he says, listen, there are these three categories. And bless the one who can. If you're able to accept it, accept it. If you're not able to accept it, then just pray that God shows you the husband or the wife that you're to have. But but Paul said that the one who's unmarried because of calling should be holy both in body and spirit in 1 Corinthians 7. Therefore, these eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake should be able to come to peace with their celibacy, come to peace with it both physically and spiritually. It should not be a constant torment to them, either physically or spiritually. And, and I think that that's what it would mean. If God has called you to this kind of celibacy, you'd be able to accept it. Okay. Well, sometimes I think about being married and, you know, might be not, but, but overall I'm okay. I'm, I think this is where God wants me to be and I'm all right with it. If that's a person's calling, then Jesus says, if they can accept it, let them accept it. All right, we'll have to finish here with just verses 13 through 15. Nobody thought we were going to make it all the way through the chapter, did they? No, it's just too late for that. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. It's marvelous that in the midst of Jesus' teaching on marriage, parents brought their children to him to be blessed. 
Today, parents should still bring their children to Jesus. Jesus wants to bless them. Jesus wants to welcome them into the kingdom of heaven. You know, it was a Jewish custom in that day for parents to bring their children to a rabbi for him to bless. And by the way, we're told by Luke chapter 18, verse 15, that these were infants. They were very young children. Probably what we would call toddlers, you know, uh, two, three, four, five years of age. Not much bigger than that. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Again, doesn't this show us something wonderful about the character of Jesus? He was the kind of man that children could be around. You know, if he was a mean or, or cross or angry or grumpy old man, who wants to be around that? So what did he do? The children came to him and he laid his hands on them and they departed from there. Jesus blessed the children with the laying on of hands and he blessed them. He did not baptize them, should I say this? But he did bless them. You know, there are some people who try to extend this logic, and they say, well, Jesus blessed the children, and baptism was a blessing children, so this means that children should be baptized. I would say no, no. It does not mean that children should be baptized until they are of age to understand belief and repentance and conversion. Well, we have quite a thing behind us here tonight. We have this transition from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem. We are not far from the cross. We're several chapters away, but but those chapters are in a compressed period of time. We are in the last several weeks before the cross, right now in the chronology of Matthew. We have Jesus in this whole debate on marriage and divorce, not siding with Shammai, not siding with Hillel, but putting forth the scriptures as the standard and promoting and emphasizing marriage instead of divorce. And then we have him blessing children. It's a nice evening for thinking of family things. Father, this is our prayer tonight. We've dealt with very hard things. And we ask, God, that you, by the power and the wisdom of your spirit, would guide each one of our lives into faithful, obedient interaction with your truth, as we've read here. And Father, with a variety of people here tonight, there's no way that I can individually speak to each life, but that's the glory of your Holy Spirit. You can do this. You can take these strong, lasting principles and apply them to each individual life. Give us a passion for seeking you until we know what you want us to do. Thank you, Lord. Help us to have our mind and our heart aligned with your will. In Jesus' name, amen.